0: Welcome to your digital reputation. Here's your host, Roger Christie.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us. My name's Roger Christie, founder of Propel and LinkedIn advisor to leaders who know the value of a strong digital reputation. Today, we're exploring how to build the best online employee advocacy program with a very special guest. It might surprise you, but There are still organizations out there whose social media policies state that staff can only post on social media when they're sharing pre-prepared or pre-approved corporate content. It might surprise you, there are still organizations out there who believe employee advocacy means force-feeding branded content to staff and incentivizing, even gamifying, the number that they share. Well, perhaps this doesn't surprise you, but it might make you cringe because you know these things aren't genuine employee advocacy, that there has to be a better way and you're on the hunt to find it. Well, if that's you, you're in luck because today I'm joined in our UK studio by Charlotte Lander, who is the Director of Social Media and former Global LinkedIn Lead at Standard Chartered Bank. Welcome, Charlotte.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: It's an absolute pleasure. Now, I'm sure you've seen and heard many weird and wonderful stories around online employee advocacy over the years, which I'd love to get to, but perhaps if we can, let's just start by giving our listeners an understanding of your background and expertise. So you're currently heading up the global social media team at Standard Chartered, looking after your global strategy channels and the employee advocacy program, which is where we're going to focus today. And for those who may not know the brand, it's a leading international bank with 16 billion revenues and over 85,000 employees worldwide. So a fairly sizable player in the market. So Charlotte, Can you tell us a bit about your journey and the role that you have today?
0: So I've spent almost 20 years in marketing and communications, mainly in financial services, but I also did a stint in property and consultancy. And there's two things that have really defined my journey. The first is that I've worked in both marketing and communications. That's less unusual now because when you think about marketing departments today, they are full of communications, media, PR specialists, because marketing has become everything that you do to grow the brand and the business. But back when I started, it was quite unusual to switch from marketing and events to an internal communications role and build that out into almost a hybrid role. You know, I was communicating with our auctions clients, our um, private finance clients, but I was also writing for our intranet homepage. The second is that I've always gone where the growth is. So either that's personal growth for me or where I see the largest opportunity. I've really focused in the digital marketing space and you cannot be an expert in all verticals. So about five years ago, I had to choose. I selected social media because I saw that as the biggest areas of growth and it hasn't disappointed.
1: It's such a good mix of skills, Charlotte, and something that I think would give you strong foundations for the topic we're going to talk about today um, and what really rich and effective employee advocacy looks like online. And I'm keen to get that. So maybe if we can start there and, and learn a bit more about when and why started Standard Chartered actually started its employee advocacy program.
0: We started about eight years ago and we're really lucky. Our people are our biggest strength and they're already, some of them, passionate advocates for the brand. So, we saw that colleagues were already talking positively about the bank online. So, our program aim was to wrap our arms around what they were already doing and kind of put that measurement and that framework and support in place. Over those eight years, we've had different you know, priorities and focus as we've just mentioned, advocacy is one part of my wider role. But what it's left us with is a really strong senior leader program. Over half of our management team are active on LinkedIn as a social platform. We have our CEO named as a top voice by LinkedIn. And recently, two of our execs were named in the FTSE 100's kind of most effective execs Using LinkedIn today, so we're building on that senior leader focus, and we're scaling across our markets, and we're bringing in a advocacy tool next year to help us with that that scale.
1: So what's really encouraging about that is, you know, one of the things we hear all the time when we talk to clients about. Uh, leaders getting active online and the impact that has on employee advocacy. You just shared there what many people I'm sure would crave, which is an active and visible CEO. And not just that, but there's there's depth and there's almost strength across the executive team in having so many of your leaders active. So, that must be a huge benefit for you when you're going out. And also, I think an empowering thing for staff when they're looking up and seeing how other leaders are active and performing online, does it give them confidence to go and do their own thing online as well?
0: Absolutely. It not only gives them confidence, but it gives them permission. You need your senior leaders to understand the value of that that's one thing. But to be actively sort of walking the talk themselves, that is huge. And if staff see that, not just at a C-suite level, you know, mid-tier management level, it gives them the permission to do this as part of their you know, day-to-day jobs.
1: I love that, giving them permission. One of our clients uh, talked about, if you trust your people enough, hand them the microphone. And I love that kind of thinking of, we trust people to come into our organization and do a job and do a job well every day. We should apply that same thinking to the online world. So, maybe Charlotte, if you can share a little bit about your own specific remit in all this, you know, what does a, a sort of day in the life of online employee advocacy look like for you?
0: Well, no two days are ever the same, but I oversee the program and work much more closely with our senior execs, so that could look like reviewing our training plan for the next quarter, reviewing the data from some of our senior leaders, that report that I mentioned that named them in the FTSE 100. I was very quick on the phone to that, that consultancy that produced the report to understand how that was analysed and how, what went into that to see how we can improve that performance. So, I'm all about kind of the data as well as the, the creative side. And as I mentioned, we're rolling out a new tool. So, it could be also overseeing some of the testing or development as part of that project. So, it's really varied.
1: Excellent. And given your experience, what would you say are, um, you know over the years as things have matured, what would you say makes a successful employee advocacy program? What are some of the secret or must-have ingredients in your opinion?
0: First and foremost, it's that you must empower your colleagues, not use them as part of the programme. So, you alluded to this at the beginning, but they're not another marketing mouthpiece. So, really focus on the training and the guidance and the support for those colleagues. The next is that you need to tie your programs to the business objectives and goals if people are going to see the value in it. So you need to focus on the individual, but enable them to understand what impact they have on those business goals as a whole and why it is important that our colleagues are part of this to to drive those business goals. And that leads me on to the next key area, which is you need to be data-led. So, using insights, whether that's to create content, provide guidance for colleagues, so they're using the best use of their time on the social platforms in terms of the topics they're talking about, but the formats and how they're saying it, to when you play back some of those success stories and thank those colleagues as being part of your program, that you're doing it. In a data led way, you're showing the impact that they're having and the potential impact that they still can have. The next we've talked and touched on about having active senior leaders that all plays into a bigger change management approach, which for any organization that's either blocked social media access on a corporate device or told their employees that they shouldn't be online talking about the brand, there needs to be a shift, especially in regulated environments, especially for organizations that have cybersecurity and data leakage teams that I'm sure are sending out quite scary communications about what you should and shouldn't do. There needs to be a change management approach so staff feel comfortable and really understand what is and isn't OK to talk about online. And the last is not essential, but if you want to scale, you are going to need some sort of advocacy tool because otherwise it is very difficult to measure and prove the value If you don't have some sort of coordinated way in which you do that, Um, and I've seen a lot of people try to do it manually, you know, tracking of hashtags, tracking of share of voice, et cetera. But it's actually very difficult to then attribute what the advocacy piece is adding to those business goals.
1: So I'm hearing a real theme there, Charlotte, of you talked about data even then with the example of scaling and using a platform to be able to get greater visibility of what's going on uh, and insights you, you talked earlier about the use of data and sharing that data with your colleagues for them to understand the impact of the work that they're doing and even just you know being clear on the the goals of the program and the outcomes you're looking to achieve it sounds here like there's a fair degree of transparency and what i call you know adult conversations around what is the purpose of employee advocacy in terms of helping us to build a better employee value proposition, for example, and strengthening that employer brand online or equipping our teams to be able to go and have more considered and richer sales conversations with prospects out there. This isn't something about saying to staff, hey, we want to use your voice as another marketing channel, as you were saying. This is about everyone working in partnership for the betterment of the organization. Is that fair? Yes. So there's a real opportunity there in terms of leaders coming on board and recognizing that by them stepping up to the plate and by being visible and active, as you were saying earlier, when they are visible and active, hopefully they get recognition in the FTSE 100 report, as you were saying, but even simply by being visible and active, what they're doing is they're actually, as you said, empowering their people to step up themselves and empowering them to access a whole range of benefits that support the, the employee, the individual, but also support the organization and what it's trying to achieve. This all sounds great and there's some really rich advice and, and tips there around those must-have ingredients. But I'm sure, and we talked about them some at the, at the start, there are plenty of horror scenarios and pitfalls and things. We talked about some of them at the top. So, where can an organization come unstuck when trying to get an employee advocacy program up and running?
0: I think one of the biggest pitfalls is not defining what success looks like for your organization. That's going to be very different for each organization, depending on what you're trying to achieve. You've alluded to a couple of them, you know, are you going to have social selling as part of the advocacy program? And are you tracking that and aligning that with your success measures? So defining what success looks like, but also setting those goalposts so that you know how you're going to measure it and that either you as a program lead or an individual within the organization, part of the advocacy program starts to feel that sense of achievement. If you move those goalposts constantly without first achieving some of those uh, successes, people lose momentum, they kind of get lackluster and you're not going to see the kind of success that you want. The next I would say, and again, I think you've touched on this in the beginning, is only using branded content or restricting that content so much that it's, it's completely the same for everyone. You know, the value comes with advocacy because it's a personal connection and a network that's relevant. So only talking about your brand in isolation in a bubble and not thinking about the wider context of what's happening means that the content is never going to be that useful. So if you're a brand that is not entertaining or funny, all you've got is being useful and helpful. So you need to maximize that by thinking about what's happening in the wider industry, ecosystem, and what your clients you know, really want to understand and hear about. On the same content element, we've got a good example from a campaign we've done recently where the main sponsors of Liverpool Football Club. um, And we're really pushing for girls to stay on in sports because twice as many girls drop out by the age of 14 to boys. Yet when you look at the data and speak to women in senior leadership roles, a lot of them have stayed on in sports because it's the transferable skills that it gives you. So we provided staff with the video, an emotive video, We provided them with that stat, about half as many girls that drop out by the age of 14 and some of the reasons why. But we asked them and we put in, please personalise why actually this is really important to you. So some of the examples we had were, you know, from women leaders talking about the experience of sports and those transferable skills to parents, you know, saying why it's really important. And it was parents of girls that gave one angle, you know, I'm really passionate that my girls stay on in sports and you know, don't drop out because of peer pressure or, or body image. And parents of boys saying it's absolutely vital that girls stay on. This is why it's important and, and why mixed teams are important. So it was a real range of information and updates that hit the mark with their audiences and it was far better than anything we could have come up with that just said, here's the post, please share it so that personalization is absolutely key i think the other my probably my last one is that people focus a bit too much on quantity and actually i'd suggest readjusting that and focus on quality so Starting small and scaling, but also focusing on those individuals or those small groups that are adding you know the, the most value, who's driving traffic to your website, who's generating you know those leads and those relationships. There's an element always of scale to advocacy, but first start on the, the quality.
1: I think that's a really good point, Charlotte. And one of the things or one of the criticisms that I often hear about employee advocacy programs when they're not done well is that they tend to gamify output versus outcomes. So, there's a focus on encouraging volume, as you were saying, that frequency of content getting out there. And then You know, the whole essence of it, the whole authenticity and essentially the whole purpose of it is lost because we're focusing on gamification and being on top of a leaderboard by how much I put out versus the implications uh, and the outcomes of doing it well. And and actually, want to come back to that element around personal storytelling because it's something that we hear and talk about a lot on this podcast. And in fact, we've just recently done some research, our next digital reputation report, and we found that... 5% of content from this cohort, which was public sector leaders, 5% of the content that they produce related to a personal story. Now, that same 5% of content generated 50%. Of the overall engagement, um, that was generated publicly. So 5% of output was generating 50% of engagement, which is just remarkable. And it talks to your example there, the wonderful example of, um, you know, the Liverpool football club and keeping young women in sport. It talks to that example because it, it shouldn't be the case that every single employee has to share the same campaign announcement. It shouldn't be the case that every single employee has to toe up and and do exactly the same thing as one another as you were saying before there's nuance there if this is a campaign that resonates with you if you have some personal skin in the game if your trusted network the people around you know you and understand your connection to that issue then they're going to be far more receptive to your message than if everyone just posted some kind of generic or cookie-cutter message out there. So I love that example because it solely reinforces that point that you need to empower your people. Yes, give them the assets, but also give them the license and the trust to adapt it through their own voice. Hey, it's me, Roger here. Sorry to take you away from this fantastic episode, but I have some really, really great news. Our latest digital reputation report is almost ready for release. I know, I'm pretty excited too. The Propel's digital reputation report is Australia's only comprehensive analysis of how our most senior leaders use or don't use LinkedIn as a strategic business tool. Last year, we reviewed the ASX 200 CEOs, but this year, we've put more than 100 public sector leaders under the Propel microscope. So if you're interested to know how public sector leaders compare with their private sector peers, how different jurisdictions perform against their state and federal counterparts, or you're simply keen to learn what best practice looks like on LinkedIn, this is the report for you. And you can be one of the very first people to grab a copy simply by signing up to the Your Digital Reputation newsletter. Just head to propelgroup.com.au and click the newsletter tab. Or find the link in the show notes of this episode you're listening to right now. Speaking of which, let's get back to the action. Out of interest, did you have any feedback from people off the back of that campaign who were, you know, they felt empowered themselves to share their story through your prompting?
0: The campaign's ongoing. Yeah, we didn't get direct feedback, but I saw a number of my colleagues that haven't posted before definitely sharing um, that information so I think it was a good start to their road to advocacy more long term.
1: I love that too and again the issue will draw you in to the conversation. We often hear from people, and this and I'm sure you have this experience too, particularly at the leadership level. Uh, leaders often worry about, what can I say? What can I talk about? What will people be interested in? What I've found time and time again is if the issue is something that is close to a leader's heart and what they care about, they can't not get involved in the conversation. It's so easy for them to just dive straight in when it's something they're really passionate about. Now, I've mentioned that word leaders. We've talked about it a lot already on this podcast. And I think we agree that leadership participation is crucial to driving these sorts of programs. And as we were saying before, creating that kind of comfort and psychological safety for staff. So, if they are so vital, if we agree that, and that seems to be unanimous, what's the best way to make the case for leaders getting more involved in these programs?
0: So first and foremost, it's understanding what their actual challenges are. You know, what is it that keeps those execs up at night? And there'll be probably some running themes that are fairly consistent across the board. But one of their roles is that they need to build trust and reputation for the business to grow that business and it's about showcasing how they can do that through advocacy when we look at reports like Edelman's study you know the cycle of distrust is growing and who we trust is getting smaller so you're more likely to trust your own ceo your friends family and colleagues more so than governments and journalists and to your point earlier you know people are now expecting senior leaders to take a stand based on those values and and that purpose. So if you can align what those challenges are that that individual leader has with some of the opportunities for advocacy, you're already starting to kind of turn their head towards it. There's also the fact that, you know, again, we talk about data, um, you know, for the first time ever, the majority of FTSE 100 CEOs are active on LinkedIn. So their peers are seeing the value in that leadership and i haven't met a senior leader yet that didn't want to attract and retain talent so that's always a good angle to go in in at when you sort of talk about what do you start off with who are you focused on when you want to get active on social so the attraction and the retention of that top talent but back to sort of the peer piece the one of the reasons that those execs are so active is that advocacy is great in good times and it's important that your senior leaders have a voice you know, to build the brand, to, um, to showcase the values and culture. But it's actually really important during times of reputational risk or crisis because silence can be a risk in itself. So, they need to have that established voice and we've had a couple of examples recently in the UK where prominent CEOs have had to step down. There's an example from NatWest and, and BP. And those um, individuals stepping into that CEO role during that crisis period do not have a strong online brand. So already they are on the back foot in terms of how are they going to communicate that message. How are they going to lead from the front? How are they going to reassure staff and clients and investors in that space? Just to recap, there's the reason for the business case and the alignment there. There's a you know push because it's expected now that senior leaders take that active voice and that celebration in good times and the benefits of the brand. But it's also for from a reputation risk point of view, it's really important that they have that visibility.
1: And what I'm sensing too, Charlotte, there's an urgency theme to this as well. Because, as you say, I don't want to be a doomsayer, but you know, there does seem to be. We are living in an issues-rich environment, and not necessarily one that's going to topple a CEO, but certainly there will be challenges that every leader faces in their um, in their organisation. And if that's the reality, and if one of those realities, as you've described it, is senior leaders leaving, um, and if all the digital brand equity, whatever you want to call it, heads out the door with them and there's not that succession planning in place, then as you say, you lose that vital stream of engagement with key audiences. That direct line to communicate, that direct line to attract, that direct line to retain is lost if all that equity is invested into one senior figure who then walks out the door. So, I absolutely get that That is a business case there in terms of having competitive advantage, having and retaining the talent that you need. You've got to have more than one leader active because otherwise that is a considerable risk and one that I'm sure no organization wants to face today. When we talk about all the positives, and you have shared many positives here today, if I'm sitting and listening to this and I'm going, yeah, but it it, it still sounds too hard or it still sounds like you know, something that my organization or my leadership are not ready for. Can you share some of the major benefits of an employee advocacy program that might help get people over the line? Why should they bother investing and, and some of the benefits that you've heard about?
0: So the main one is about building that brand and reputation for the for the long term business growth. Advocacy is the power of a connection and we all know the importance of trust in long-term business growth. Because if somebody doesn't trust you, they're not going to buy from you. They're not going to invest in you and then certainly not going to join you as an employer. And brands, are people do not trust objects and a brand is an object until you can humanize it. So your people are one of the best ways in which you can humanize your brand. And advocacy is one of the best ways that you can get your people out there and, and to do that at scale. And the numbers back that up. You can see return on investment in talent, in earned media, in leads. And I've got a couple of stats that I'm going to reel off because I often get asked, how do I prove it? I haven't started my advocacy journey. I don't have any data in-house. So I'm just going to reel off a couple of stats that may be useful for your listeners. On the brand side, these stats are from LinkedIn. Brands with advocacy programs can see 79% more visibility, 65% increase in brand recall, and 53% increase in engagement. And if you are tracking your advocacy, you can calculate the value of that earned media value, what you would have had to pay for to reach the same client base. On the talent side, organisations with advocacy programmes are 20% more likely to retain top talent. That's from jobfight, 58% more likely to attract talent. That's from LinkedIn. And you're much more likely within your advocacy program, again, depending on how you're tracking this, with you know, UTM links and um, if you don't have a a wider advocacy tool, but you're more likely to be able to attract that talent at a lower cost. And there's also some research out there that suggests that that you have much more engaged employees because you have that personal connection um, that brought them in in the first place. When it comes to business pipeline, a couple of the stats are 77% of people say that their purchasing decision is based on hearing from somebody they trust. That's a status brew stat. So that's hugely important that they need to hear from somebody that they trust. And it ties in really nicely with the next one, which is seven, you get seven times more leads generated from employee networks. And that stats from IBM. And what you find is that those customers that you have obtained often have a higher lifetime value. So we're hitting brand, we're hitting talent and business pipeline with some pretty big stats um, and positive data behind that externally. Obviously, if you've got an internal advocacy program, you can start small with those use cases and building that to show the value as well.
1: There's some really helpful numbers there, Charlotte. I'm sure people are sitting there taking notes going, thank you. I'll look into that one further and share that with my executives in due course. But what I'm hearing through that is themes. I mean, essentially, you're saying, if you've got a connected and visible leadership team. You then have connected and visible staff, and these things are going to generate much more connection, um, engagement, and ideally credibility and trust with your audiences as you build that familiarity. And as you've just described there with those wonderful numbers, that then generates tangible commercial benefits. So, if you are listening to this podcast and you were wondering, what's the sense of an employee advocacy program? Well, there you have it on a platter. But Charlotte, I think that You know, you're obviously part of quite a sophisticated and mature setup with Standard Chartered. You guys, you've done this for many years now, but I'm sure it didn't start that way. So maybe again, to those people who might be at the start of their journey, what advice or encouragement would you give them to ideally enjoy that same success soonest?
0: I'd say start small and prove the value. The word pilot is a brilliant way to start your advocacy journey without anyone having to commit too much for you to really test the impact that you can potentially have. The next is just to make sure you're aligning any success with those business goals and objectives. I think it's very difficult as, you know, comms and marketing colleagues that sometimes it's how you directly attribute to those business bottom line, but wherever you can you tie that up? My last point would be have some ambition with your advocacy program, but put it into a roadmap and make that realistic. So if you're starting small, that's great. But where is the end goal? Where's the vision? Because that's the buy-in that you're going to get in the more long term for this program.
1: It's so rare that you get this dedicated time with an expert in their space. And I've no doubt our listeners, as I said, have taken more than a few notes today, Charlotte. So, thank you so much for sharing your experience and wisdom. And I should say, Charlotte also shares some of this great content and insights on LinkedIn regularly. So, be sure to check out her profile and follow along there too. But hopefully, if you're listening, you've already heard a compelling case for starting or thoughtfully expanding your online employee advocacy program. Now, you might need your leaders to set the tone and get you off and running. I cannot understate their importance, and Charlotte has certainly reinforced that today. But it is ultimately the diversity and depth of your people right through your workforce that will most powerfully resonate with your target audiences today. Remember that seven times number that Charlotte shared. So, please do reach out with any questions or comments of your own. Uh, employee advocacy efforts. We always love hearing how things are going in your world. But in the meantime, thanks as always for joining me on the Your Digital Reputation podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for listening. If you've learned something from today's conversation, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with others. For all show notes, head to propelgroup.com.au. Thanks again for listening.